on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, a new career for a well-known former AFL star. After buying a horse and then, you know, was doing some trail rides and, and went down to uh, visit a guy who's into who's into um, training. He said, have you ever seen camp drafting? And I said, no, no idea what that is. And he took me along to one. And, and to be honest, I thought, this is pretty cool. You all sit around, you have a beer and you ride some horses. And forging a new career for a Northwest blacksmith. So it just went out and just bashed on the wood metal and built myself a forge. And next thing I know, I'm talking to the medieval guys over there. And you have a blacksmith? No, do you do it? Oh, I used to. And then, yeah, just went in after Dad went. I was just like, oh, just that little void. Yes, a career as a blacksmith helping with the mental health of some farmers in the northwest and the former AFL star who's pretty good when it comes to camp drafting. Have you guessed who it is? I'll tell you shortly. Those stories coming up today on this first Monday of the new year. Hope it's a beauty for you and your family and friends. G'day, Tony, with you in 2023 on the ABC for the continuation of Australia's longest-running radio show, The Country Hour, now into year number 78 and going strong. Also coming up today, a visit to Yorktown Organics in the north of the state. And we'll take a close look at that weather with some threatening storms, hail and strong winds on the horizon. And you can let us know what's happening in your neck of the woods as well via the text line. You're getting those storms along with the hail? Let us know. 0438 922 is that number. 0438 936 Into the first few days of the new year, it's now more than six months since the deadly varroa mite detection in Newcastle in New South Wales. The ban on importing bees into Tasmania remains. Local beekeepers have re-established the art of breeding their own queens. Victoria has also continued its ban on bees from New South Wales since the outbreak, and that's crippling for beekeepers who traditionally operate both sides of the border. That's according to Central Victorian beekeeper Peter MacDonald. He says the closure is affecting both bee health and the beekeeper's hip pocket. It's got quite a large impact, really. It's, um, it's had, a, had a huge impact, especially because we've, had, we've come through probably one of the worst starts to a beekeeping year that, that I can remember, um, and, and my mother as well. It's, uh, we go back a fair way, and um, just that cold, wet spring coupled with the floods, it, it's mean we've had, a, we've had a terrible year, and Varroa um, being found up in Newcastle, New South Wales in June, uh, and the consequent restrictions, and especially the border closures, um, has really compounded the difficulties we've had. So it's uh, had a dramatic impact on both the bees and the beekeepers. Okay, so even if we didn't have this Varroa outbreak and this subsequent and long-lasting border closure, you w- you would have had a shocker year anyway. Oh, absolutely. It's it's um yeah the the cold and the wet, and coupled with the floods, um, we would have had a terrible year. Um, and and it's sort of it. It's provided a lot of difficulties, and especially for bees in New South Wales, and, and quite a lot of Victorian beekeepers like myself, uh, we use that Southern Riverina, Southern and Western Riverina area of New South Wales quite extensively, especially in springtime. There's been beehive losses through floods. There's been beehives that, like, we had bees we just couldn't get to for two months through the peak of the year and couldn't manage them. Um, so their health has gone backwards as flowers have gone off and, and sitting in water. So it's been pretty terrible and the, and the cold has just meant that there's been very little honey produced so the bees their health taken a real hit and and of course we we are like any other farmer and, and the bees are our babies and um 
we get very concerned when their health goes bad too. So it's it's had a fair toll on us. And and border restrictions or the, or the ban on bees coming back from New South Wales and Victoria, and the coupled with the floods has meant we've been had had very limited options as where we could take the bees. So so some of them we just haven't been able to move, and they've been in very poor conditions. And yeah, it's it's just compounded everything. So it's been really hard. And if you can't get those beehives and those bees to areas where there is plenty of pollen on offer, and as we move into next year and as as it gets cooler and then into winter, what's that going to mean for their food stores and for their health? Well, that's, that's, uh, this, this next six months, so coming from January through towards winter, um, it's a critical period. It's always, every year is a critical period for, for bees and beekeepers. We've got to make sure that the bees have, have good access to pollen, um, and good access to, to honey to, to put stores of food on through winter. And if we can't prepare them right for winter, then they'll be, they'll be in poor condition going into winter. And consequently, they'll be, they'll be very poor in terms of health when they come out of winter. And that's, that has a wider impact for Victoria as a whole, because once we come out and into, into spring, that's when the peak pollination period is. And, and we need heaps of healthy bees, um, to, to start pollinating crops. From August onwards, almonds are the, are the first pollination crop that, that comes off the off the rack uh, for Victoria, and um, they they start in August, and we need good bees by August. That means we've got to spend the next six months preparing our bees and make them as healthy as possible. So you're calling for that border closure to be lifted imminently? Oh, absolutely. New South Wales have come out and declared wider New South Wales is free of varroa. So we need, there's a little bit of flour and a little bit of honey now in the areas where the floods have passed through, like specifically the River Redgum and the Black Boxes. So where it's already passed through and the flood levels have gone down, we can get in close to those trees and get some, some pollen and honey. That's going to be gone by the end of January. So we need access to more flowers from the end of January onwards and there will be more flowers here in Victoria. Our grey box and red stringy bark trees especially will be flowering around that time, and we, we need that. That is essential for us to, to keep the bees healthy and also potentially generate a little bit of income and, and sort of make up some of the losses that, that we've all had through this, this past terrible spring. So we, we would like the, the Victorian government to actually decide to allow us to bring bees back from New South Wales so we can ensure they're healthy going into winter and, and for the pollination season next year. And throughout this, the duration of the outbreak, you and others have been working with Agriculture Victoria and I, I suppose supportive of what they've done maybe to this point, but what, what are they saying to you now? We're absolutely supportive of Agricultural Victoria's efforts and the New South Wales DPI. We've been, the honeybee industry um, and, and my family in particular, have, have been working really closely with all, gov- all levels of government to come up with this plan for over 20 years. And uh, so we've, we've worked really hard. We agree with the response plan. We're, we're fully supportive. But it's reached a point where, where it's contained to the Newcastle area, the varroa mite, and they're still finding little odd little pockets of varroa in one or two hives, but it's contained there, and the wider industry needs to move. We're a mobile industry. Bees are a flying insect. They don't care about rivers. They don't care about lines on the map, and the forests and the flowers are on both sides of the river. We Every year, we cross borders, and we need to be able to do that again. Otherwise, we're going to be 
yeah, dramatically hit, and and the beekeeping industry as a whole, and the flow-on effects for for pollination-dependent industries will will be large. So we, yeah, we need that help, and the help we need is to to let us chase the flowers again across borders. Dicey situation there for beekeepers on the New South Wales Victorian border. That was beekeeper Peter McDonald speaking there with Angus Verley. Uh, just uh, going on after six months since the first detection of that varroa mite near the port of Newcastle. We're coming up a busy time for one organic farmer in northern Tasmania. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Stay in touch via the text line 0438922936. If you see any problems out there, let us know. Uh, any uh, issues with the weather, also please let us know and we'll uh, pass that information on. 0438922936, talking to the Bureau in about 15 minutes from now to find out the latest on uh, what we can expect for the rest of the afternoon in various parts of the state. Well, the Jackson family in northern Tasmania are known for innovation when it comes to choosing which veggies to grow. According to farmer Ben Jackson, produce has been flying out of the property to hit the shelves of grocery stores and the plates of restaurant customers over the holiday season. Madeleine Rojan dropped in to see him at Yorktown Organics near Beaconsfield. We haven't really changed it. We do try and do new things every year. Um, as you can see over here, we've planted some Malabar spinach, which we grew probably four or five years ago, which was um, very popular. So, yeah, I know, I'm um, trying some, this year we're trying some purple tatsui. So I think it's called Purple Rain or something like that. Wow, that um, sounds very unique. Where, where, where did the idea to plant those come from? Um, we've got a really good relationship with our seed suppliers. So anything new that comes up, they kind of we're a little test case for them, I think. So yeah, give it a trial and see how it goes. Great. And have they been selling well in um, in restaurants and? Uh, yeah, everything's been flying off, flying out our door. So yeah, can't keep up. Not sure why, but maybe it's because of the supplies with the floods, or it could possibly be the. Um, the TV shows and stuff that with the healthy eating and uh, kind of pushing more towards our organic stuff. Yeah, lots of people are looking, always checking out how they can be more healthy. Is it? It's quite a um, big chance to take, though, planting things that no one else is planting, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we like to plant stuff that we like to eat and taste and stuff like that. So there's a, a few things that we just don't go into because we don't personally like them. So, yeah, everything's about flavour that comes out of here. So if any of our lettuce or something starts to go a bit bitter, we will not put it on the market and obviously quality of how it looks and stuff. Well, I'm actually really intrigued to try some of those things myself. Um, and, yeah, you said this year's been really busy is that out of the ordinary or have um, restaurants been doing things a little bit differently in terms of their purchasing strategies? Uh, definitely a little bit on the purchasing. I don't want to waste any stock, so probably 
more ordering. We've put on a little bit more deliveries. So that also benefits us because all the, our produce is very fresh when it gets out onto the, onto the shelves and, it's, and to the restaurants. And are you finding that you have much wastage? Uh, not this year, maybe a couple of times with the weather. We've had things bolt and stuff like that, but that's every year that happens. So, yeah, no wastage really. So everything that we grow, we grow to market and just really slowly increase into market. We have chefs come down and they'll go, oh, we're going to kind of want to do a whole lot of this certain product and can you grow a little bit more for us? And we kind of tentatively do that because we have been left in the lurch before where someone said, oh, we want X amount of lettuces and we went and grew them all and then had no market for them. So, yeah. Yeah, and also, yeah, talking about marketing veg, when you're bringing in lots of unique and quirky vegetables that other people aren't thinking to grow do you have to also think about or put more effort into how you market them to um, businesses? Once, well, Claire is really great at the marketing side of things. Um, yeah, we put a little bit on Facebook sometimes just to get people interested so they know what's there. Um, the chefs seem to really be onto it. Then we've got a few people that um, we can just call up and they'll take a large quantity of stuff. So, Is there anything else you're planting that I should know about? Uh, we'll go for a wander and see what we can spot hanging around. The purple thing sounded cool. Purple rain. Yes. Oh, that's this one in here. I haven't actually tasted it yet, so we'll do that, shall we? Yeah. So just grab a leaf. Very purple. Thank you. Yeah, it is very purple. And the veins are quite beautiful underneath too. It's slightly less nutty than normal tatsui, but still very nice and crisp. So is this a Chinese veg? Uh, yes, it is another hybrid, so it's been yeah, developed by one of our seed companies, and yeah, it's quite good because it's got a nice shelf life and doesn't off gas. So off gas. Um, some brassicas, depending on the genetics of it, they will off gas real quick, and it will send the rest of our products off. So our shelf life of our bag would be reduced. So uh, say a mybuna, which is very similar to this, that starts to off gas probably on day four or so and then you've only got another two days left of all your other products in the salad bag so and we now don't grow that anymore. And who do you sell to mostly? It used to be when we maybe five years ago more to the restaurants was probably about 60% of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's probably cut 50-50 between the restaurants and retail. So that's obviously all the home cooks, they started cooking with the COVID and now they just keep on wanting the stuff. So, yeah, we've just got to keep on trying to supply it. Yeah, yeah and I can imagine those those less common veggies would be more found in the smaller grocery stores and on restaurant menus? Uh, yes, definitely. The IGAs have been very, very supportive of this. Um, yeah, a lot of our people who we supply to, especially the the IGAs and Hill Streets and as such have really yeah, helped us along through these times. So, yep. Is there anything else coming up for you in the new year or any challenges that you're facing as a farm? Every year's a challenge. I oh, know this last year's just been, yeah, the last couple few years should have just been, I oh, know, throwing the punches and just got to keep on coming back. So, it's farming, it's a gamble, and yeah, it's. I don't know, fun and interesting. Other if it was all just, I don't know, easy sailing, it would be boring, wouldn't it? Yeah, that was Yorktown Organics' Ben Jackson with our reporter Madeline Rojan. No rest over the holiday period, keeping very busy.
Well, an organic farmer in the top end is hoping to commercialise his homegrown compost and sell it across the country. Volker Stoltz of Bluey from Organic Ag and Humpty Doo has been working to produce organic compost on the farm for the last three years. He's starting to see some success, so much so he plans to market it. Bluey says the ingredients for the compost come from a whole range of sources. We try to only work with local products. We don't bring anything in from further away. We try to work with local uh, uh, supermarket waste. We're working with uh, products from the meatworks and we're receiving a little bit of waste from the local barramundi farm. What is the goal? What are you trying to do? What I personally strongly believe is that if you make a very high quality compost, which I know how to do through past training, it's a bit like being working in a big kitchen. Compost making is like, exactly like cooking. You kind of try to find all your ingredients, which has to be, say, fish waste or food waste or something which is an energy. Then you're going to find some carbon which is dry grasses and stuff. And then you get some woody materials. And then you, if you have some old compost and you mix the whatever, how many more ingredients, the better the product. When you mix that together with a, with a compost turner. And if you treat it right and you do the recipe right and you treat it right, you end up building hummus. And hummus is, is a product which which is when you put it on the land, it builds soil. The only way, what I try to achieve is we're seeing very clearly in, in farming that organic matter declines consistently. And with what we do in the compost room, we have consistently increase of organic matter with the management we're doing. And that means we improve in our biodiversity. And, but creating stable compost with the right recipe, that is my goal Doing it in this climate and understanding 100% what quality is, that's, that's a challenge. That's why we have to do future trials and do lots and lots of soil testing and crop growing and variety and try to understand what is good compost. So you've been doing it for a few years? Yeah, we've been working with this waste since uh, 2019 and, uh, and try to build it. So you're getting to a point that you wanted to be at it. It's becoming successful for you? That's a challenging question, purely because in the last six months we had a we had a, a nematode issue, which really challenges us to understand. Because root knot nematode is not a nematode, and my understanding was a conventional. If you if your soil health declines, root nematode find a way in, and that's when you have a problem. But when your soil health increases, and root nematode comes in, I'm convinced it was a was a favourable year last year. But yeah, definitely we. We had a point with nutrients. We had a point that we working with the department that a uh, lot of diseases which are total threat to the area we don't have a problem with. Yes, to beneficial insects. That means we're definitely in a green zone of understanding that we are going the right direction. But is it going to take five years, two years, one year? We don't know. But saying we are successful and, and making a profit, our learning and the inputs are still are reaching their returns for the products we're selling. But you were saying that the soil is improving to, to where you kind of wanted it to go? My goal has always been 4.5% organic matter, and we started with 1.2, and now in the last three years we have built it to 2 to 3, and I want to go to 45 That's my goal. I don't want to go any past that, and I don't 
If I go to four and a half, then I can start to grow a bit more crop. You know, push, a, put a bit more energy, take a bit more energy away. But four and a half percent, in my understanding, in the tropic is a huge achievement. And if you get four and a half percent, we had a point. I think the water holding capacity. It's an extra million liters a hectare. That means our irrigation. It's not that you irrigate less. It's just it creates a huge flexibility. It's like your organic matter goes up to like four or five percent. It's 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 perfect. Are you looking to commercialize it? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's purely because I'm so passionate about quality. Like I said, it's there's no focus on it's all focus on compost and it's focus on even a little bit in the mindset in Australia that we have to prove to ourselves that compost works. And for me, it's a bit like it's worldwide proven that it works. Has it been used in the tropics? Not much. Has it been successfully used in the farming operation? I don't think there's that much understanding and knowledge there in the tropics. That's why for me, I now I can produce quality and now I can build organic matter. That means I'm 100% want other people to do the same. That means if I can produce a thousand ton and sell it to somebody else, I just help the industry to grow soil you know and that's I'm definitely very keen to do commercial quantities I think for us handling doing five to ten thousand ton that's maybe the maximum we could do in the future just because of machinery and restrictions that's that's a big expansion from 1500 tons yeah but in compost it's it's like um, Darwin is just carbon is just there's so much there if you want the carbon is 60 percent of your production or 70 percent that means of a sudden, if you don't have the carbon, it gets too expensive and you can't do it. But because the carbon is here, that's why to my compost is definitely a, It's up to yourself if you want to do it. On the Country Hour, you're with Michelle Stanley and you're hearing from Bluey out at Organic Ag, Organic Australian Grown. What about, I mean, markets? It, it sounds as though it could be quite a lucrative business for you. Where would you be hoping to sell it to and, and you know, what kinds of pricing and comparing to what people can currently buy. Well, you have to remember, if you use 10 tonne a hectare, 100 tonne does 10 hectare, I'm convinced that compost is going to become an input which you cannot do. Like, people would not say, I don't use nitrogen, I don't use fertilizers. Compost is going to become in the next, I don't know, in the next couple of years, three years, that everybody will use it. Not, like, I always say, if you use 500 kilos or a tonne, it's hugely beneficial for your biodiversity. That means, if if just the area around it, like the mango grows and everybody would commit and say you some, there's already 5,000 tonne gone. What kind of price would you be hoping to sell it at? The, the thing is, it costs you around 90 to $110 a tonne to make. And that's not including the land you're working on, it's just the products you put in, even if they're all given to you. Just to manage the system of handling a thousand ton of product, if you handle it, you have to pick it up first to make your recipe, then you have to turn it, you have to turn it again, you turn it often, like three times a week. And then when you finish it, you have to stockpile it, to store it, then you have to cover it, and there's just so much work in handling a thousand ton or two thousand ton with a with a loader, you know, that's why it's, it, for us, it's, it costs us around, now it costs between nine and hundred and ten dollars direct cost, and then you... You would, I would say that price tag around, when I look at it, is around $200 a tonne. I think commercial compost in a lot of areas these days gets sold for 100 And that's purely because it's just stockpiled, grinded down and sold. There's, not, there's no compost production in between. Nobody windrows and turns and manage and take 
all the temperature that nobody does it but if you want to make a high quality product you could nearly think it'd be twice the price at this stage with the knowledge we got do you think that there's an appetite for that kind of input in this part of the world costs are going up you know fertilizers and chemicals and all sorts of different inputs for producers on top of that you've got the rising labor costs and the shortage of of labor do you think there's going to be enough people that would be interested in forking out maybe double for their compost that's a that's a very good question all literature in the last couple of years proves a hundred percent we have to build soil that means what can we do we can ignore it and keep have more problems or we try to work out what to do and if if you say you put a high quality product on there people don't mind they're paying double for fertilizer right now and they're surviving and for a sudden you, you turn around and say you're paying an extra 200 dollars maybe you can reduce your fertilizer by 500 dollars a hectare just purely because you, your soil health increases you know that's why there's so much to understand on that on that side of farming if you're not involved it seems like nothing is changing but if you're involved what happened in the last 12 months is quite amazing and there's so much change going on that's why in 12 months time i would say an extra 50 percent talk about this subject than what what's happened today you know well, we'll have to check in with you in the next 12 months and and see how these plans are going that's right you should very exciting i'm excited that's Volker Stolt from Organic Australian Grown at Humpty Doo talking to Michelle Stanley about his homegrown compost. Still to come on the Country Hour, what's on the summer fruit platter and the old farm forge, which is helping the mental health of ex-farmers in Tassie's northwest. Plus, a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The final day of Hobart's Taste of Summer Festival's been delayed amid warnings of a severe thunderstorm hitting the south and potential large hail. The festival will run from 3 o'clock this afternoon until 9 o'clock tonight. The federal government says China needs to be more transparent with the international community about the impact of COVID after introducing new testing requirements for travellers coming into Australia. The Australian Council of Social Service says increased welfare payments coming into effect this week are not enough. About one million Australians will receive more money, with some payments boosted by up to $20 a week. But head of ACOS, Cassandra Goldie, says more needs to be done. Almost 100 people have been charged with drug offences at a New Year's Day music festival in Sydney. Patrons at the Field Day Festival in the Domain have been charged with possessing drugs including MDMA, cannabis, cocaine and LSD. In cricket, Pakistani import Fahim Ashraf could make his Hobart Hurricanes debut in tonight's clash against the Adelaide Strikers. Ashraf has made his way to Tasmania after being released from the Pakistani test team. He's replaced a Kiwi import Jimmy Neesham in the Hurricanes squad of 15. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us on from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. All right. All the talk's been about uh, what we're looking at this afternoon, so you might uh, just outline to us uh, what we can expect. Well, at the moment, the uh, thunderstorms are being suppressed a little in the south with a bit more low cloud around than was um what was expected, uh, but that's that's burning off now. That's dissipating now. So the atmosphere is very unstable. As soon as you get a bit of heating in it around the south, it's likely to produce these storms we've been talking about. But apart from that, around the state, there's been there's a, quite a bit of storm activity in the in the northeast and the central north, just inland of about Bishano. 
there's a storm at the moment and up around just offshore of St Helens and around St Helens there's quite a bit of activity at the moment as well as around Flinders Island there's there's lots of lightning strikes up there right at the moment. Another storm went through early in the morning through Devonport and then went over Launceston uh, and down to around the Great Lakes area so there's been quite a bit of activity already this morning. And much rain with that? Uh, there have been only a couple of reports of, of uh, lightish falls. So the, since 9am, Mount Victoria's had 15 millimetres. That's been the top in our gauges. Uh, Powhatan's had 5 millimetres and Launceston received 3. The, in the 24 hours rainfall gauge uh, figures, we've got Great Lakes. Was, the Great Lake was uh, 11 millimetres. Poatina nine millimeters, St Patrick's head seven. So Poatina's in both of those. Uh, yeah. So so just some light falls around um, the state. So when can we expect things to sort of calm down later on today? Well, the potential for for the, the severe storms about the south into the Midlands and across to about Fresnay will uh, ease off. Excuse me. About mid afternoon, um, and then. Up the upper the east coast, it'll be a bit later on till about 7 p.m. The the the, the main risk times, and uh, so yeah, we're just I'm watching the screen very closely, see how things are going. Um, yeah, the the cloud is starting to to dissipate, so uh, it um, it's starting to the risk is increasing now uh, through the afternoon. Okay, and after that. Yeah, so the the good news is that this cold front that's coming through, it's not it's more like a cool front that's coming through the state, is going to clear out the hot, humid air that's that's over us. The very it's very humid, actually, very heaps of moisture in it. Uh, that's going to be cleared out today into tonight, and then for the rest of the week we have very almost static uh, weather pattern with a a ridge just to our south that's directing light winds um, over the state, uh, south light southwesterlies to southerlies. And even easterly, there's a bit of a trough goes over Bass Strait to tomorrow and the next day. Uh, and that's going to be pretty static until Saturday. Um, and it's also going to bring fairly cloudy skies with a low-level inversion trapping the cloud underneath it. So it'll be, it'll be cloudy, but, but mostly settled and, and not, not much wind around for those days. Okay, warnings. What have we got? Yeah, we've got a strong wind warning today for Storm Bay, the Upper East Coast, Lower East and South East. For tomorrow, there's strong wind warning only for the southeast coast. And those coastal waters and the swells, what's happening? Yeah, so the, today the winds generally are north to northeasterlies at 10 to 20 knots, uh, reaching about 30 knots at times about the east and southeast. Winds will be tending west to southwesterly in the west. West to southwesterly is at 15 to 25 knots in the west, extending statewide except the northeast during the day. Uh, and also the winds will be reaching up to 30 knots as that happens in the east. The swell in the... I'll, I'll do the winds, sorry, for tomorrow before I do the swells. The winds tomorrow south to southwesterly, 50 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots at times about the southeast and lower east in the morning. Winds tending east to southeasterly about the northeast and central north during the day. The swells for today, for the western for today and tomorrow, west and south, we've got west to southwesterly at two metres today. Uh, and west to southwesterly is about three metres tomorrow. In the north, a northeasterly swell both days about a metre, a westerly swell under a metre today, and tomorrow a westerly swell as, as well as the northeasterly swell of around a metre. And in the east of the state, a northeasterly swell of around one metre today, one and a half tomorrow, a southerly swell also today less than a metre and about one metre tomorrow, although both days tending about southwesterly 1.5 to two metres offshore in the south. 
Terrific, Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Cheers. Michael Conway from the Bureau. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. It's one of the favourite times of the year for the fruit as a feature of the holiday table spread at a backyard cricket competition or as a sweet treat for a beach day. Fresh fruit does never fail to hit the spot. Until it does, that is, as Lucy Cooper reports. The experience of biting into a cherry or taking a chunk out of a watermelon piece can be soured when the fruit doesn't quite taste right. But the experts are here to help with some tips and tricks for picking the best fruit off supermarket shelves. Larry Griffin, uh, manager of the Townsville um, Simon George and Sons. So as we enter December, we do come across some lovely stone fruit. It's been a really tough start of the season for a lot of farmers just the the rain across the entire eastern seaboard there's good stuff out there it's going to be a little bit more expensive this year Um, all i can recommend is try to pick fruit that's a little bit riper shelf life has been affected with all the rain so if you pick the right product you know you're getting a quality product and how you tell something's ripe is you just give a little touch should be a little bit um, soft and it should have a delicious smell so if you're not getting a really good smell it's not ripe and You can take the risk and buy it early if you want, but I'd recommend probably trying another fruit line. So we have some beautiful plums here. Um, They are dark purple. They're a little bit um, soft to touch. Um, Smells not quite there yet. Give it another day or two, it's probably gonna come along. And plums are eating the best um, at the moment out of all the stone fruit. And the season shouldn't be as affected as much because that plum season starts later and goes through to May. So where are these uh, plums coming from? These plums are currently coming from Victoria. They they look wonderful at the moment. Uh, In terms of people all across Australia, you'll be really consuming fruit from the entire country this Christmas, won't you? Yes, you will, yep. Perfect, moving on, uh, let's hit these guys. What have we got? So we got some beautiful peaches at the moment. Um, We are buying them in firm, just so they travel all right, and then we're ripening them up on site for our clients. Again, just wait for them to just be a little bit soft and have that beautiful smell before purchasing. For these white peaches, they always go well at Christmas time, fresh or, or whether you might grill them and chuck them through a salad. What should you be looking at when you're going to go purchase some peaches? Is it, is it Does fuzz matter or something? Well, peaches have fuzz, so if you're looking at a fuzzy um, fruit, it's probably going to be a peach. If there's no fuzz, it's going to be a nectarine. Just looking for something that's not blemished, has a nice smell. Um, a little bit um, tiny spots are okay. That, those can be sugar spots. It just means the fruit's going to be really sweet as it ripens. Wow. Okay. And finally, up the top, something that I think many Australians love, especially at Christmas time, is delightful apricots. Apricots have been eating fantastic this year for Australian fruit, especially so early. Um, They do not look the best because they have been weather affected. So again, pay attention to more how it's smelling and how it's feeling um, and and go by that and don't mind the odd blemish or dimple on them. They're still going to eat really good. And if you're cooking with them, then the little blemish is not going to matter at all. I would say uh, apricots are probably the most temperamental out of all the stone fruit. And a lot of people are always so disappointed when you bite in and it's just not quite right. Yep. So it's that, is, are we talking of smell like a really strong apricot smelling? Um, yeah, you should get a decent apricot smell from them. They should be soft to touch. 
Um, you're really looking for the smell most of all. Larry Griffin, the Townsville-based manager for fruit and vegetable wholesaler Simon George and Sons. Keeping with stone fruit, here is Tim Reid of Reid's Fruits in Tasmania discussing how best to pick cherries. Best if the cherries are shiny, the skin is shiny, and ideally the stem on the cherry is green. It's a demonstration of freshness. Once the stems get a bit dry, it's demonstrating they may have been picked for quite a while or they haven't been in refrigeration. So, you know, the best cherries are uh, those shiny-looking fresh ones, and uh, that's probably the best way to select a good cherry. Tim Reid, Managing Director, Reid's Fruits, Tasmania. Let's move tropical now, and I'm going to give you a pineapple tip. You want to make sure your fruit is an orange-reddish colour on the outside, and if you grab a pineapple leaf from the top of the fruit, if it pulls out easy, then that pineapple is ripe and ready to eat. Staying in the tropics, it's a Queensland delicacy, so let's find out from Lee Spence of Lambert's Produce in Townsville how to pick the best lychee. So at the moment we're looking at uh, local Ingham lychees. Uh, at the moment they're really ripe, ready to eat. They lose their greenness, uh, they lose the green out of them and they become sort of a bright, vibrant red colour. Uh, that's when they're ripe, ready to peel. Uh, they will always have a little bit of green around the stem, but... For the most of the fruit, when the most of the fruit is red, it'll be nice and ripe, ready to eat. Do you think our fruit butters will be costing a bit more this year compared to previous years? Yes, definitely. Um, price of cherries is one of the main ones. Uh, they're going to be a little bit high this year. Uh, strawberries are on their way up as well, unfortunately. Uh, things that are like grapes, lychees. We've got local lychees at the moment, so they've come down in price. Uh, our grapes are nice and cheap at the moment. And... Um, our mango should be coming down as well. We have buckets of mangoes. They're nice and cheap. OK, so we have ticked most summer fruit off except for the mighty mango. Here is mango grower Ben Martin of Bowen with his best tips and tricks. Have a good smell of the fruit. Um, you'll pick the mango up, don't squeeze it too hard, and but you should be able to smell the aroma um, of it coming through. Um, and, yeah, look at your colour and your, your shape of it and, yeah you'll get a nice product. If that doesn't whet your appetite, nothing will. North Queensland mango grower Ben Martin finishing that story from Lucy Cooper about the uh, plate of summer fruits. Great time of the year. And you can head to the ABC Rural website to read more tips and tricks on putting your best summer fruit platter together. Coming up, we'll uh, introduce you to the former AFL star who's now riding horses. This summer, the kids have a world of audio to explore on the ABC Listen app. From the fun and madness of ad-lib stories on Story Salad... Biscuit boy! ...to answering the curious and curly questions on Imagine This, Newstime and Short and Curly... It's an Argentinosaurus nest! ...and staying entertained in the car with a playlist of games, podcasts and songs on road trip. Amazing! Family fun audio entertainment on the ABC Listen app. Download it now from your app store. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six is our text line number. Just a reminder too, the cricket starts in Sydney at the SCG on Wednesday. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this week, we will have a shorter version of the Country Hour at lunchtime in the cricket, but there will be a digital version of the Country Hour online from midday as normal, midday to one o'clock. But uh, just reminding you about the, the cricket, three days this week, we'll uh, 
to the uh, uh, the uh, lunch hour situation with the test match between South Africa and Australia, of course. Well, Victoria's biggest camp draft was held over the weekend. When I say that, you might start to paint a bit of a picture in your mind of the kind of people who compete there. But would you believe there was a three-time AFL Premiership player in the mix? Our reporter Peter Somerville went along to the camp draft on Friday where he met Josh Gibson. I think just post-footy, wanted to get into riding and um, after buying a horse and then, you know, was doing some trail rides and, and went down to uh, visit a guy who's into, who's into um, training. He said, have you ever seen camp drafting? And I said, no, no idea what that is. And he took me along to one and, and to be honest, I thought, this is pretty cool. You all sit around, you have a beer and you ride some horses. So I felt it was a good way to keep the competitive juices flowing now that footy was all over. And is that working for you? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's frustrating because, you know, obviously I'm a very competitive person and so you're starting at, at ground zero, uh, so you've got a lot of catching up to do, but uh, I love it, it's good fun, um, it's a great community sport, um, you know, it, it really involves the whole family and, and I think that's probably, you know, some of the really great aspects of the, of the sport. So did you come to this from, uh, I guess, a, a rural background? Had you been around horses uh, before you decided that you wanted to buy one one day? Uh, look, I, I rode a little bit as a kid, pony club. Uh, I just lived in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, so I was out towards Yarra Valley Way where I was riding, but uh, there was no horses during the footy career. So, you know, really from once footy took off from about 14 to, to 30, uh, there were no horses. So, yeah, it's something that I've tried to adopt late in my life uh, as a new hobby. Are you trying to recruit other former AFL players? Do you think we'll see more of them in the arena? No, look, they, uh, they're all used to sleeping under in five-star hotels, not under five stars at night, mate. So I think trying to get them to line a swag or, or sleep in the back of a horse float, um, you got no hope. Don't like your chances there. Don't like, don't like my chances at all. Where has it taken you? Where have you competed? No, look, it's, uh, it's been good fun. Um, you know, going to places like Wollinga Park, um, the property from Terry Snow, and, and, you know, really seeing a facility that's been built there, um, going up to Warwick and, you know, getting to see the history behind the, the, uh, the sport. And, and, you know, even down here in Gippsland um, where you've got, you know, it really is a, a small league and, and the talent pool here is amazing. So... You know, you get to explore some good places around the country and, and meet some fantastic people. Now, what are you competing in here? How are you going at this particular camp drive? Uh, yeah, look, I've had a few runs. Um, I got one through to the second round today of the uh, Open, which was good. I just got off one then. I'm glad you guys didn't have a camera because that one didn't go uh, as planned. But I've got one through and got one to go in the maiden, so it only takes one, doesn't it? Former Hawthorne player Josh Gibson speaking there with Peter Somerville at the big camp draft meeting in Gippsland at the weekend. And we'll stick with the camp draft for a moment longer. Here's Mark Ruff speaking with Peter about how he first got involved and the origins of camp drafting. Since I was a little kid, I was always involved with horses. And uh, Kenny Bolton and Alison Bolton took me to a draft when I was only a little tacker. And um, I went on, I played polo cross and did show jumping and... The bit that I love about camp drafting is the ability to work with your horses and the love that people have for their horses at camp drafting. You know, all horse sports, we, we like them, but camp drafting is a... It's not a team sport, but at times it feels like a team sport because everyone helps. Everyone's very keen to give you give you help when you need it. In what way? A bit of advice? or Advice where, from how to shoe your horse to how to fit your saddle to... How to select your cattle. There's, there's always someone willing to help. 
And you've come um, to this point, I guess, to camp drafting from polo cross, show jumping. How do you make each of those transitions through the sports? Is that seamless or is there a bit to learn there? It was easy for me because when I worked out I was no good at the first one, I went to the next one and then I was no good at it. But I'm taking a bit longer to find out that I'm no good at this one. So, No, but we, I like all horse sports. We've got thoroughbreds and racehorses and Shelley and I do a bit of cutting now as well. Um, but camp drafting is our main sport and we do love it. So, yeah, it's not an easy transition, but um, camp drafting is very unique. I was told you were pretty good at it. Have I been misinformed? Misled. or yeah, been misled. No, <laughs> no, no, we just enjoy it. We, we enjoy the sport a lot. Someone told me I should ask you what you haven't won in camp drafting. Oh, pretty much everything. <laughs> no, look, we're not overly successful. We, we enjoy our drafting and we pick up a few bits of silk here and there, but, um, yeah, we're in it for the love of the game. You can give me a bit of a, a history, is that right, of where this sport came from? Oh, look, I, I might get a few details wrong, but I think camp drafting is one of the only... There's very few sports that were invented in Australia. And, you know, there's Australian rules football, uh, netball, and I know camp drafting is one of those. So very unique in that basis. But it started in the outback, really, where the ringers used to work the stock camps. And then they would really just make a competition out of cutting cattle out and then trying to run around out in the middle of nowhere. And it eventually evolved into camp drafting. And now it's amazing that this sport is still amateur non-professional because there's people it's just a massively growing sport it would be the fastest growing horse sport in the country without a doubt so does that mean we might see more camp drafts in the future more new events or or just bigger events i think there's a bit of both like you've got the likes of Wallinga that terry snow puts on that have taken it to a whole new level um you know televised telecast and not to underestimate a draft like this one here at Dumbork, what the guys have done here is just phenomenal. Uh, you know, I think there's something like 1,700 runs here over the four days. Um, great prize money, great level of competition. Uh, huge effort by these guys to run such a fantastic draft. Yeah, that's Mark Ruft from Diggers Rest, who also owns property in Queensland, speaking there with Peter Somerville at the big camp draft meeting at the weekend in the Gippsland area. And uh, g'day, Steve from Devonport. He says, hey, Tony, how appropriate. you got a reporter with connections to the AFL for a footy-related topic. Talking with Josh Gibson there was Peter Somerville. Uh, Steve says, Peter Somerville, the name of a former Essendon Ruckman. <laughs> good, on you. good on you, Steve. Thanks for that. Have a great 2023 with your ABC. Uh, finally today, as technology whips along, some old farm skills are being left behind as they're no longer strictly necessary. But for a small group of men across northern Tasmania, rediscovering an ancient rural craft has had a surprising benefit. A reporter, Meg Powell, dropped in to visit the Kentish Community Men's Shed in Sheffield, where an old farm forge has been helping restore mental health. And warning, this story does mention suicide and depression. I do blacksmithing in the vein of uh, what I would call homesteading. So the farmers that come out to Australia who didn't have a blacksmith, they would set up something on their property and you know, fix their tools, make things, that sort of thing. That's how I do it. So I use a hand crank forge, a hand crank blower, sorry, to create push air into the forge. And I'm using charcoal, which was what was available here in Tasmania when they first came out, before they found coal and things like that. 
so at least knock trees down, burn them. <laughs> a lot of the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then there was anyway. So, yeah. so this was something farmers did. They set up. Yeah, um, my great, well, my grandfather's uncle. Um, they came out here, and he was between 1900 and 1920. He was a general taxi driver, general everything, because um, I grew up around Cressy Longford. So out the back of there, there's um, history of him setting up a blacksmithing shop just to help the local farmers, because um, blacksmiths were you know, a craft, and there are a lot of, especially in Australia, where people go out a long way to start up homesteads. So a lot of the um, farms had little blacksmith shops, and it was really just the farmer trying to get things done until they could get to a blacksmith, you know. There were a lot of blacksmiths around, but they were mostly in towns and, and that sort of thing, so, yeah. What happened to the blacksmiths? Um, Industrial Revolution. Um, essentially, Britain paved ahead and became less and less. I have a newspaper article from 1987 saying it's reviving the craft, so even back then, you know, so in England, it's a British article, we were mass-producing, well, pretty much everything with cast iron and then the smelters going blacksmiths became less and less sought after so the blacksmith sort of sort of died out a bit and then it became cheaper to buy these things than it was to hire a blacksmith um, there are still things that blacksmiths do um, but basically everything's mass produced so. and um, it's certainly mass produced now and there's not many blacksmiths around which makes it a pretty unusual hobby for you to have yeah there's a lot of um, black backyard blacksmiths but i started out originally um oddly doing art and then so we did a Brian says he found his way into smithing as a young person and then dropped it and then personal tragedy struck I was sort of a bit lost and mum had passed away suddenly the year before and I was sort of supporting dad with his mental health and cancer brain cancer and that so when he passed I was sort of stuck like what do I do now and it's you know a couple of hours a night on Skype with my father and going to visit sort of takes up you don't realize how draining it is and I just needed to get back to something that I knew so it just went out and just bashed on the metal and built myself a forge and next thing I know I'm talking to the medieval guys over there and do you have a blacksmith? No, do you do it? Oh, I used to. And then yeah, just went in after dad went, I was just like, oh, just that little void. And what do you what do you smith? I try trying to keep the traditional um, practices alive. So fire pokers, bracket shells, fixing people's broken tools, that sort of thing. Um, just to sort of show people that you need a candle holder, make a candle holder. You need a bell, you make a bell. You need a, you know, those sort of things and try to simplify it for them. Over at Sheffield, in the shadow of Mount Roland, a group of men meet regularly to get on the tools and talk about mental health. Blacksmithing has disappeared over the years. There's only a very few of them. Terry Hughes. He's the president of the Kentish Community Men's Shed. Most of the farms had either a blacksmith shop and that, where a blacksmith used to go around and visit them, at, uh, either on horseback or probably a push bike or something like that. But uh, I mean, as time goes on, the blacksmithing disappeared in the district and uh, we decided to bring it back into life and work with the school up here and plus the other... You know, people who want to learn to blacksmithing. A few years ago, the men's shed shifted an old blacksmith's forge over to their space, log by log. BJ, you started blacksmithing back in the 90s? Yes, that's correct. Well, my style of blacksmithing is more medieval, so um, I represent the, the Viking era, which is back in the early 700s up to 1066. Uh, but I'm only self-taught. I didn't. I was lucky enough to be part of the men's shed. I 
come down from Brisbane five years ago and I joined the Men's Shed four years ago. And uh, I've just been involved in help building it and now we're at this stage where hopefully we can start running some, some shops and things like that and get other blacksmiths to come out of the woodwork. You know, I'm sure there's other guys out there that just don't have the ability to use anything. You know, They can come down and show us their skills. You know, More of the, the, the traditional skills of Tasmanian farmers and things like that, you know, where mine's a bit different and there's lots of other different areas in, in blacksmithing, you know, just jewellery making and, and all that sort of thing. It must have been exciting for you to join the men's shed and then they decided to get a forge. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like enough, I had a bit of a background in it, so... I help it sort of get up and running. And do you find um, that blacksmithing? It's a, it's practical, but it's also it's an art and it's a craft. Do you find yeah. that it's a, a bit of a release for you, a mental? Benefit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when yeah. you're out there, and just you can create things. You know, when when you get metal to a certain temperature, it's 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 very it's very pliable and very workable. So it's satisfying at the end of the day when you look down and you say, "Oh, well, I've made that from a square block of metal." You know. And, yeah, it is a release because you're just out there hammering away and you take out some bit of stress. (laughs) (laughs) Terry, have you got plans to to learn a bit of blacksmithing when the forge is up and running? Yes, I have uh, got plans to learn how to do blacksmithing and that. Uh, When I went to school at Sheffield up here, there was a Sheffield area school back in those days, we did do some uh, metal work and blacksmithing and that. So uh, it's good to go back in and... Have a go and bang a piece of metal around and turn it into something uh, useful. A lot of people think, oh, you just go out and hit it like crazy, and it's like, no, it's sort of distracting because you have to think. So you can't just go out and heat, bash, bash, bash. You know, you've got to pay attention to the steel, you've got to pay attention to the temperatures, what it's doing. So you sort of get lost in that, which is a great escape from mental illness. You know, I suffered from suicidal depression and, and things like that years ago, and this has really helped me sort of keep the black dog at bay because um, he sneaks up pretty, you know, if you're not paying attention, there are days when I go, Ugh, and I have to figure out why, I'm, and then, you know, <laughs> get out into it. So. Yeah, it's, um, a lot of people I know have succumbed to it, so, yeah, it just, growing up in a rural area too, in Tasmania, there was a lot of um, suicides in amongst the men especially, um, and that, and, yeah, it just sort of, you don't, when you're growing up, you don't, you hear what's going on, but until it happens to you, you don't really pay a lot of attention. You get to a point where you can't see any way out. And then you realise when you meet other people like it that you're not alone. But that's the big thing. You go through this and you like you understand there are people out there who suffer, but until you get to connect with someone, a lot of the time that's all that person needs. Yeah, Bernie-based blacksmith Brian Hardy telling me, pal, how learning to forge metal carried him through family trauma, forging a new relationship. You also heard from Kenish Men's Shed members Terry Hughes and BJ, the Viking blacksmith. And if you need to talk to someone, contact Rural Alive and Well via the Raw website. That is our Country Hour for today. We will be back uh, tomorrow after midday. Catch you then.